I'm Urban Hannon, the editor of The Josias, and this is The Josias Podcast, a conversation today about the Mother of God and our Mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary, she who is the seat of wisdom and, perhaps, wisdom itself. Welcome to all of our listeners, welcome especially to our benefactors on Patreon, and welcome today to my friends Father John Tevate and Father Hugh Barber. If you follow us on Twitter, you've probably already seen our masthead announcement that Father John Tevate is the new senior editor here at the Josias. But Father Tevate is first and foremost a priest of the Archdiocese of New York. When he isn't defending the rights of Holy Mother Church on the internet, he is ministering to her children at the parish of St. Mary in Wappingers Falls, where he lives a clerical common life with several other priests of the Archdiocese about an hour and a half north of New York City. Father Tevate, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you, Reverend. Our other guest today is Father Hugh Barber, whom our listeners might know from his many podcasts and articles for Catholic Answers, or for his writing at Chronicles Magazine. Father Hugh is a priest of St. Michael's Abbey in Southern California, a community of Norbertines, Premonster Tensions, White Canons, Canons Regular of Premontre. They have almost as many names as they do vocations, which is to say, a lot. Father Hugh is also my former professor and a dear friend. So Father Hugh, we're so grateful you could join us today. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. And we'll get rid of that perhaps at some point. (laughs) Very good. Uh, Happy feast, by the way, to both of you of St. Thomas Aquinas. It's a propitious day for us to be recording this. He's in the martyrology today, everywhere. Indeed, indeed. indeed. And here at the Angelicum, actually, we still, going all the way back, still celebrate um, a special mass for him today, special feast, cancel all the classes, have a big lecture. So, yeah, his memory lives on on the day of his death. And, of course, today is also the feast of my personal favorite saint, uh, Saint Perpetua. So, Saints Felicity and Perpetua, I'm sure, also looking looking down on this conversation, loving Our Lady very much from heaven, and happy that we're here to learn more about her. Before we uh, dive into our main text tonight, our main conversation tonight, though, or tonight for me, uh, in the morning for Father Hugh over in California, um, Father Hugh, I wanted to talk to you just real quick. For our listeners who don't know anything about your community, who don't know anything about St. Michael's Abbey, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about who you are, what you all are, what you do, and also maybe a bit about how you all got started in North America. I was blessed to get to travel up to Hungary for the first time last week. Uh, I was invited up and got to help with a couple of liturgies up there last weekend. And so the history of your community uh, was on my mind very much, and I thought our listeners might find some of that interesting. Sure. Um, Our community, uh, of course, we're Norbertine, so we're Canon's regular Prémontré. Prémontré is the place in uh, northeastern France where St. Norbert, St. Norbert of Xanten founded our uh, community as part of the the, uh, uh, the the Gregorian reform in its later manifestation, founding communities of priests who live a common life, uh, therefore canons regular under the rule of St. Augustine, clerical rule. So not being monks, but still having the common life and particularly devoted towards to priestly ministry and the, the celebration of the sacred liturgy. So that's what we do here at St. Michael's Abbey. We we praise God seven times a day and have our conventual mass 
and uh, administer the sacraments and receive the sacraments and offer up divine worship and preach so that people can be led to the sacraments and uh, and to their full incorporation day in and day out into the mystical body as she lives her life here below, waiting for the consummation. So there we are, waiting for the second coming and worshiping God in the meantime under the leadership of um, the, the clergy whose sacramental ministry uh, informs the whole. Now, uh, um, St. Norbert founded our, our order in 1121, so we just just had our uh, 900th uh, anniversary in, 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 uh, in 2021 and our jubilee. And our own community was founded from a community of canons in Hungary, in northwest Hungary, and it was founded in 1180, just right at the beginning of the order's history, founded out of Premontre, out of out of France, um, and uh, uh, existed there throughout the vicissitudes of history. You know, all kinds of things: Tatars, Turks, Calvinists, Lutherans, Communists, you name it. I mean, as I said, we just built a new abbey here in California, a brand new abbey, beautiful Romanesque abbey, uh, big one. You know, on this traditional abbey model, um, and people would ask, "Why are you building such a?" Big building and and something which is which is um, uh, taking so much time and effort and also money uh, when you could just build tilt ups like they have here in Southern California you can build a building it looks fairly substantial put you know sprinkle mission style over it and have something that'll last you forty years you know who's going to be in Orange County any longer than forty years uh, <laughs> so <laughs> say well you know, we want to build an abbey where we can be thrown out and come back again over the next 600 years, at least three times. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the ideal of clerical life. When our Lord, when our Lord said, uh, if you give up uh, father and, and spouse and family and property for my sake in the gospel, you receive a hundred times more. He also added in one gospel and persecution, because that's why the church world persecutes the church is people give up their means to serve the gospel and the world becomes envious and then wants to take it. And if you look at the history of the church, you'll find uh, that that's what's always behind all persecutions is getting the property. And so hopefully no one's listening uh, right now <laughs> in America, but in any case, there we are. So our community was um, was closed by the communists uh, and they were not going to be able to pursue their work of, of um, common worship and education of the young. And so seven of our fathers fled from Hungary in 1950. It's a lot, but six years before the uprising, which was failed, uh, which made them decide that they were just going to stay in the states. So they did, and they founded our community here in Orange County in 1961 as part of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And we have grown ever since from the original seven, and now we are at 104. Congratulations. Yeah, praise the Lord. Yeah, thanks be to God. So I was thinking about that and thinking it might be an appropriate story to share here on the podcast because, as you might know, might not, our motto here at the Josias is... Non declinavit ad dextram sive a sinistram, which of course is talking about King Josias there in the old in the Old Testament, saying that King Josias declined neither to the right nor to the left. And on the last episode, we had Father Gregory Pine, a good Dominican friend, on, and we were remembering um, a trip he and I had taken, looking at the um, sort of life of Blessed Pier Giorgio Frassati and learning from Blessed Pier Giorgio's niece that the Italian fascists were completely intolerable to her uncle, to Blessed Pier Giorgio. And it was interesting that she said the reason those fascists were so intolerable to him and that he fought against them so hard in his life was because they expelled 
Jesus Christ from the center of the people's political life. And I was thinking about this motto because given the history of your community and the oppression that the Norbertines in Hungary found at the hand of communist rulers, it's clear that the church and her saving mission is really hated by the world on all sides. It doesn't matter whether that's coming from the right or from the left um, in those various regimes of the 20th century. And, you know, we wake up this morning and check out the newsfeed. I'm sure it's not news to anyone listening to this podcast that the church and her rights are not faring very well under liberalism, either right or left, either these days. But as Charles DeConnick says in the work that we're going to be talking about today, the world is getting worse and worse and worse, which means that we need to look to Our Lady more and more and more. So why don't we go ahead and turn to her? So on the last episode, we were talking about Our Blessed Lord, and so I thought it was only natural that we might follow that up with an episode about His Blessed Mother Mary. And to focus our conversation, I thought maybe we'd consider a particular text about Our Lady. So fans of the Josias will no doubt be familiar with the name Charles DeConnick the great Thomistic defender of the common good in the last century. But what listeners may not know is that Charles de Connick also wrote a very special essay about the Blessed Virgin. The essay is called Ego Sapientia, which means I, Wisdom. But before we dive too deep into that text, Father Tevate, would you mind giving us just a little bit of context here? What should we know about Charles de Connick before we open up Ego Sapientia. Sure, I, I can try. <laughs> you were just reminding me that uh, our predecessors predecessors here at the Josias were much more uh, much more knowledgeable about Charles de Koning and uh, sort of disciples of his than, than I, certainly, but I will do my best. So Charles de Koning was, uh, was born in Belgium, 1906, died in Rome, 1965. And uh, for churchy people, a little bit of a interesting trivia note is that he was the only lay paritas at the Second Vatican Council. He was a lay theological advisor to uh, to Cardinal Maurice Roy of Quebec. But de Conning was a layman, married uh, his wife Zoe in 1933. They had 12 children together. He was, I believe, a, a Dominican tertiary. He received his PhD in philosophy from uh, the Catholic University in Leuven in 1934, from whence he went to uh, the Université Laval in Quebec. There he received a doctorate in sacred theology, and he remained there as a professor of natural philosophy until his death. He was also the dean of the uh, faculty of philosophy there at Laval from 1939 to 1956. Much of his work was in the realm of philosophy, especially philosophy of nature, philosophy of science, and he, his work really led to the school of Thomism that's often called Laval Thomism today, or River Forest Thomism, which emphasizes the, the Aristotelian foundation for uh, metaphysics and for theology, uh, especially the Aristotelian philosophy of nature, study of natural sciences as, as the important foundation for, for metaphysics. As Urban also mentioned, he's a, a favorite of us here at the Josias particularly for his work on the primacy of the, the common good against the personalists, in which he defended a true, robust understanding of the common good uh, as, as 
not to be subordinated to the individual goods of, of, of individuals, of private goods of individuals, as perhaps certain unnamed uh, personalists were, uh, were, were trying to argue. Uh, so he, of course, also wrote some interesting works on theology, including this one, Ego Sapientia, today, which is wonderful, wonderful, beautiful, very powerful work, and I'm glad we have some an opportunity to discuss a bit. Indeed, indeed. So, okay, let's let's open the text. Um, and if we can find a version of this, I actually don't know if this is public domain at this point or not. If we can find a version that we're allowed to share in our bibliography for this episode, we will. Um, if not, it's definitely in the uh, the two-volume collected writings of Charles DeConnick, which every listener of the Josias should add to their, well, it's March, so Christmas list might be a bit <laughs> premature, but you can find a way to get it, I hope. Um, yeah, okay. So let's let's head that way. And Father Hugh, I'm going to let you kind of play our Mariology professor today, if that's okay. Um, we're going to rely on you to lead us through this this text, because Ego Sapientia is a really beautiful meditation on Mary, but it's also a really challenging one. So this text is divvied up into two main parts, but 42 different subsections, and it's full of a lot of very careful theological and metaphysical argumentation. Um, but I thought maybe a good kind of first entry point might be the question, where does this name, this title, Ego Sapientia, come from, Father Hugh? Why did Charles DeConnick choose this title, Ego Sapientia, for this work, and what's he doing with that? Well, he, he chooses the title because it uh, comes from the church's use of uh, Proverbs in the sacred liturgy. And so he, he needs to have an authority, and a genuine one, an authentic one, to justify the attribution to Our Lady of the of the of the wisdom literature, and particularly of the personification of wisdom, in uh, in in Proverbs, and so consequently, it comes from the sacred liturgy, the Church's living use of it. So this his use would not satisfy the usual, um, let's say, uh, sleep-inducing uh, methods of uh, of some types of modern exegesis, but rather is in fully in line with that of say the 12th century. Uh, <laughs> when uh, when Mariology really uh, took off in the West, can I may, I may I say something really quickly though before we st launch into Our Lady? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, what is it? Uh, because we're not going to be talking about the primacy of the common good, but let it not be forgotten that he wrote the primacy of the common good the same year he wrote Ego Sapientia, and of course, if you look at it carefully, you'll see that the common good, especially understood as the the both as inherent and as separated, uh, Ego Sabiencia is the application. If you want to know who in fact constitutes that in the created order, then read uh, Moi le Sagesse, I Wisdom, <laughs> the, the Wisdom that is Mary. That, and so it's, it's, it's magnificent in that sense that you have the speculative presentation, the primacy of the common good, which everybody always reads um, mid-20th century integralism into, and this not without reason. Um, I mean, the French version is published by Jean Madurin, you know, so that's something. But um, but concretely, in Deconic's own mind, he's thinking of Our Lady when he's talking about that and her her uh, her cosmological ecclesiological role. But that's important just to keep that in mind. There is a connection between this political question in the in the purest sense of political and the Mariological one. Anyway, Beautiful. Just a okay. 
Um, but he took he took it from the church's use in sacred scripture, and of course that's a natural uh, a natural movement because if you consider the very first uh, deep reflections on the incarnation as revealed in the Arian controversy, you see that it begins with the the Old Testament use of uh, or or the Old Testament concept of the of the living wisdom of God as an emanation of God to the to the to the incarnation and that's the fight between Arius and everybody else the interpretation of that and is this wisdom actually hypostatic and co-eternal uh with uh, with the father or is it simply the first of his creatures well you you might even want to say well if Arius had only known there is a creature who is not god and yet he was <laughs> identified with the wisdom of god and he could have stuck with her and he would have been fine uh, so, but he missed he 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 missed the the point that um, that she can only be that incarnate wisdom, not incarnate wisdom, but but uh, cre uh, created wisdom, because she is the mother of the uncreated wisdom. That's the only yeah. way that she could claim that title in in an absolute sense, as Dakota makes points out. So, yeah, Cardinal Cardinal Newman makes a point about that, doesn't he? That that uh, that Arianism is only orthodoxy if. If Our Lady and her role is what Our Lord's role was, right? Yeah, well, I, I, I didn't know that Newman had said that. Well, anyway, there are great minds around the same. Category. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to. Where's where that? Uh... That's a good question. I have to. I have to find it. There's a beautiful little uh, one-volume thing that was published on his writings on Mary, which uh, it's in there somewhere. Yeah, I think we have that in our library. So I'll I'll, I'll dig around. Yeah, I'd like to see that. So is that that's 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 remarkably um, grandiose for Newman, I should say. <laughs> Usually he's a little, more, a little more careful than that, but actually, yeah. Anyway, so so that's the uh, the the use in 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 the liturgy comes out of that uh, Christological reflection, which then it naturally is uh, um, overflows uh, in consideration of the of the of the role of Our Lady. And so that's my take on that. So yeah, basically trying to his opening line of the work right is. How may we truly apply to the Blessed Mary all that is said of wisdom in the sapiential books? So the sapiential books, we're talking about the book of Proverbs, um, Sirach, uh, the book of wisdom itself. Some of the Psalms get brought up here. Sirach called Ecclesiasticus. You know. Exactly. And this, this, uh, this line, Ego Sapientia, is in fact from uh, Ecclesiasticus 2440. Yeah. Um, that we get right there. So the big question for Deconic starting this off, right, is how is this possible? Because really, as we know from, from philosophy, there are only two cases where one gets to predicate an abstract term of a concrete term in an essential proposition. So not a metaphor, not saying that, oh, metaphorically, Mary is wisdom or metaphorically, um, you know, this girl that I'm in love with is beauty itself or something. But no, actually, literally, properly, how she could be concretely this concrete woman, how she could be this abstract thing. Um, and Charles de Connick starts to get at it by looking at the great line from Aristotle that it belongs to the wise to order. The one who is wise, it belongs to him to order. Um, and he talks about, Charles de Connick talks about uh, why this ordering is so important in the case of Mary um, and the order that she has uh, in relation to God and in relation to all things um, and how that ends up justifying this use. So 
as Deconic starts to lead us into this, Father Hugh talking about the the radicality of wisdom, how um, wisdom grasps things there in their primary root, um, going kind of all the way to the the origin of things, the principles of things. How does this end up um, applying to Mary? Where does she come into this picture? Why does the mother of God get this kind of intimate relationship to order and then to wisdom? Well, first, a preliminary uh, uh, thought about wisdom. Wisdom particularly, uh, rather than simply knowledge or of truth, wisdom uh, says that it's not only something which is true and understood as true, but it's something which is possessed in the concrete. That is, wisdom is infused through charity as a, as a, as a gift of the Holy Spirit. And so it's the concrete realization of that which is perceived to be true. That is, it's, it's, it comes about through a union uh, and not simply with, by speculation. So uh, St. Thomas links it, right, with charity too as the, the right. gift corresponding to that virtue. Right, right. Wisdom is infused by charity. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's linked, to, of course, to charity, absolutely. Not linked. I mean, it's actually, it's, it's very substance. And so, but the point there is the concreteness of it, that a personification uh, means that concretely this one who is so personified is the thing uh, exhaustively, you know, that is uh, adequately, completely that thing. And so he says, I am wisdom. You know, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Well, that is not metaphorical, you know, except insofar as a way is a weak image of what Christ actually is. But but the assertion is not a metaphor. The same in the case of uh, the application of this text to Our Lady. And of course, that's very clear because she as a mother of the eternal word is a principle, a personal principle. As a person, she's the mother. She's not simply, natures aren't mothers. And she gives birth to a person uh, in his human nature, but to a person, not to a nature. And so she can be said to be the mother of God. Another way of saying that more generally is the causa dei, uh, or a principle of God. A principle of the first principle. Uh, this is a this is a mind blowing uh, mystery uh, that shows that the divine maternity is not simply uh, a physical use of uh, a created vessel through which the word passes, but actually a personal um, origination of a divine person in human nature who experiences his sonship, that is from the eternal Father, through his being the Son. By the very same title, since he's not two filiations, he's one from the Virgin Mary. Well, that's uh, uh, you can't get any <laughs> grander than that. You know yeah. that is a divine maternity really does imply all of this. That's why the Thomists have always been right to say yes, mass conception is great, and that it presents everything in its original uh, pre-existent mode, and so it's of a tremendous mystical and metaphysical uh, importance. But the the concrete fact comes through the divine maternity, because that's where Our Lady becomes a principle of the divinity um, in his human nature. Uh, but that means the principle of God the Son. Um, and therefore, uh, and that, that, that's, if, if maternity is not through a union, nothing is. And therefore, her identity with that, uh, that divine wisdom, first uncreated, uh, makes her the uncreated, uh, the, excuse me, the created wisdom of God without, you know, by necessity. 
So it's so easy, I think, for us to get the Christology of these things confused. And that's why, obviously, the early centuries of the church are plagued with a lot of Christological um, confusion, heresy, and then conciliar. That that's all over now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now everyone's great on Jesus. <laughs> oh, man. God help us. Um, yeah, St. Cyril, intercede. Um, but no, I was thinking uh, just to make sure that we're clear on this and that our, our listeners follow well. So obviously, Mary is Jesus's mother in virtue of his humanity and virtue of right, his human right. nature. Um, we're not, you know, claiming that Mary created the creator as creator or something, but right. it would also be a mistake, indeed, a mistake that we call Nestorianism, right? To say that Mary is mother just of a man and not mother of God. Um, because in fact, as you're saying, she's not the mother of a nature. She's the mother of a person. Now, granted, she's the mother of a person in virtue of a nature, but she's the mother of a person, and that person is the eternal word. That's what we affirm when we affirm Theotokos. That's what we affirm when we affirm mother of God, that she is literally, truly, actually a principle of the eternal word. Absolutely. There's only one person in Christ, the divine one. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about um, what you were saying uh, that he has, that basically the paternity of God and the maternity of Mary, um, what the relationship between those is with regard to the person of the son? Um, that he's not two filiations, you were saying. Can you just expand on that point? Well, that that um, in in order to uh, take upon himself a human nature, and 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 precisely to be at the same time of the race of Adam, he had to be born of a woman descended from Adam. God could have made a man who was God as he did Adam in the garden, just all at once and without a mother. But such a one would not have been the head, or couldn't have been the head of the race of the descendants of Adam, because he wouldn't have been descendant of Adam. And that's why, uh, note in theology, it's very important that descendant of the human race from Adam and Eve, sorry, uh, <laughs> multiple progenitors or quibblings about whom, whom money generates, I uh, just set them aside. Uh, in no wise apparent means in no wise apparent, and no one's made it any more apparent since as before. And it's an unfortunate ambiguity, that style that we become used to, which began in some of the magisterial documents before Vatican II. And that's an example. So let's just remember that he has to be a, a member of Adam's race. That means descended from a descendant of, of Adam. Therefore, his mother had to be such a one. And so, but that maternity then... It, it means that that the relationship she bears to her son, it, it, in in from his perspective, is precisely filiation, and he's son of Mary in virtue of the very very same reason he's son of of the of the father. That is, he can't have he can't be son of Mary and son of God by two different titles, and so consequently. Um, uh, we speak of it in this way, and it's what gives her this particular um, godlike uh, 
I could dare say, a godlike quality. That is that she shares uh, the the parental relationship with God the Son. He, has, he says, just as truly and not by an analogy, he says, I am the Son of the Father and I am the Son of Mary. It's not, it's the Son there is not an analogy in one case or another. To Koenig here, uh, the quotes is a very, very powerful thing from, I think, Jean-Jacques Ollier saying, you know, that Our Lady is the, the supremely perfect and holy image of God's own virginal fecundity. You have exactly else. Yeah. And that, that's, that's, a, that's a further extrapolation which, which shows how rich the whole mystery is and how much we can draw from it almost infinitely. And for people that, that want to play around with, uh, with uh, gender expressions, um, we have plenty in our tradition already that make it very, very clear that divine things also include uh, <laughs> the avika, whatever, you know, the eternal feminine. It's, <laughs> it's there, you know. Um, but of course, it's there from a single principle. And so, since we're not dualists, we can't make male and female the original originating distinction. It has to be at a separate movement that's very, very close to the first, but it's not identical. And that's why in human language, we don't insist on the words being interchangeable. Or the terms but that being said, uh, uh, as greatness deem it is great as no goddesses, as Jarman Hopkins says. Can we talk a little bit about Mary's faith in addition to um, her her physical maternity? Because this is something that Deconic draws a lot of attention to here, and I also think of well, the gospel um, for starters, uh, uh, when Christ asks. Who are my mother and brothers? Um, but also, there's that great reading from Saint Augustine that comes up in Madden's, um, talking about Mary's dignity as the one who believed uh, in her son being an even greater dignity than the dignity of having born him physically. Um, and Deconic talks about this uh, a good amount in this work too. So, Father, either of you fathers, um, tell us a little bit about why Mary's faith is so important to her identity as wisdom here. Well, um, it's, uh, it's all important in this regard that um, her identification with wisdom, uh, being the created wisdom of God, the mother of God the Son, means that her maternity is truly universal. And it's not limited to uh, the uh, the uh, bringing forth of a composite physical being, but is actually uh, maternity according to the Spirit, uh, just as she's the mother of God the Son in person. So she's mother of all the living uh, in their uh, in their spiritual life, in the life of grace, in the life of contemplation, in the life of union with. Uh, mysteries which are not material, which are not corporeal. And so uh, often enough, in the Protestant tradition, they use Augustine's comment that that uh, Our Lady is more uh, to be honored for her, her faith than for her being the physical mother of God as a diss on the Catholic perspective, right. saying, see, it wasn't important that she's the mother. It's, it's her faith that mattered. Well, I say, honey, we're not talking about your little faith there on Sunday morning. <laughs> and your little faith, like I'm not Mary, and I have faith like Mary. Well, that's great, but but he's talking about the fact that her faith brought about the incarnation, brought about the redemption of the human race, and uh, that it was a necessary condition, a moral condition 
for her physical uh, divine maternity. You know, the metaphysical and physical orders were dependent upon her moral uh, status and acceptance uh, of these mysteries and her participation in them. And so that's, you know, all important. Also, it links her to the mystery as it was before it was accomplished in history, because, you know, it's before the abysses were, I was, you know, that's the language of wisdom. And of course, that is, that can be reached through uh, the immense scope of psychological scope of faith, which reaches like wisdom itself from end to end and includes everything in it. Right. So that's my take on that. Awesome. One of the things that I found in DeConnick that I really love on this too is he's talking about um, order and how in order Mary ends up being in a certain way the cause of all things in as much as she is the cause of the cause of all things <laughs> because she's a principle of the son and the son is the creator, uh, of course, with his father and Holy Spirit, um, that she ends up being the cause of all things um, and so has all things ordered after her in that way, everything else in the cosmos, I mean, everything else in the universe. But DeConnick says on its own, that's not yet enough to give you wisdom uh, as the procession of order, because wisdom has to imply knowledge. So it's not enough that she merely happened to be, if this were just done to her without her consent in some way, then she would in some way still be principle um, if uh, Christ had come to her, but without the Annunciation happening in some way. Um, and DeConnick says, no, the fact that he was conceived in her because she knew and consented to this. Um, here's the, the exact quote from DeConnick. He says, nevertheless, wisdom implies knowledge, a procession according to knowledge. In order that the Blessed Virgin be truly wisdom, she must, even in relation to God, in addition to her divine maternity according to the flesh, attain to the nature of a first principle according to intellect. That is what she declares in her fiat. And that, it seems to me, that's the end of the Taconic quote, but that, it seems to me, also gives us that parallelism um, that we were talking about earlier with the maternity of Mary and the paternity of the Father, that this is a procession according to intellect in some way, that what... Um, what happens when she consents to this, when she throws her will behind this, as it were. I think of, um, there's a really, really beautiful 12th century work of art, the Verdun altarpiece that's at Kloister Neuburg, Stiff Kloister Neuburg. Um, and there's a number of scenes in that that are just really beautiful uh, enamel work, kind of a nice East meets West um, sort of work of art. But the Annunciation, I think, is my favorite of them. And what I love about it is that the angel Gabriel, with Mary having given her affirmation, um, the angel Gabriel is, um, you know, uh, showing forth the Holy Spirit coming and overshadowing her. But rather than what we often see of that ray of the Holy Spirit coming to her womb um, or coming to kind of all of her or filling the room or, you know, the line of, the, the little man, the little Christ um, coming along a ray to her or something. Instead, the ray is going just to her head, just to her face, just to her mind. And it just has such the, um, the illustration of an intellectual conception before it's a physical conception, but of course an intellectual conception that is very much 
for and for the sake of that physical conception. Um, but I love that that Mary's intellect is so active and involved in all of this and that that gets taken up into the, the ego sapientia of it all. It's wonderful. And De Koenig, that... um, sorry, Father, De Koenig, um goes on to connect that to creation and he says that uh, Mary's fiat at the Annunciation is the echo of the fiat of Genesis. Of Genesis. Mm-hmm. The word whence proceeds the new order, the new order to which the ancient had been ordered. And he goes on to quote St. Anselm, that God who made all things is himself made from Mary and thus all that he made, he has made again. So that it's the connection there to um, her role in bringing about as a principle the, the new creation, the new order that God uh, was bringing about with the incarnation. Sorry, not to throw too many quotes, but what you just said, Father, uh, reminded me of this one that maybe is my favorite in the whole work. I absolutely love this image. So talking about the um, the court, the sort of cycle of, um, you know, Mary as cause of the one who causes all things, uh, including Mary, uh, who then causes him, whatever. Um, this is the, the quote from DeConnick. This is on page 10 of my version. The son and the mother thus constitute from the very beginning a kind of circular motion wherein the principle is the term and the term principle, a motion which is the symbol of wisdom which reaches from end to end. This circular motion of wisdom, which is more mobile than mobile things, is like unto play, playing before him at all times, which of course is one of the wisdom lines, but wisdom plain and the mother and son um, just in this uh, sort of, you know, chasing each other in a circle kind of image plain. Um, but, you know, metaphysically speaking, it's really, really beautiful. Yeah, magnificent, yeah. No doubt, it's that contemplative circular movement, incorruptible, eternal. Strong and sweet. It did... It, uh, Reminds me of the, the Pauline thought that um, we were destined to be blameless in his sight in Jesus Christ. That um, that predestination to be immaculate or blameless or spotless in his sight, Jesus Christ, that, that sight part is very important because that's mm-hmm. Our Lady's being immaculate is, as you point out, a share in God's knowledge of her, first of all, she shares in the predestining sight, and that uh, that that thought came to me some years ago when I was hearing the great Jesuit. I'll mention his name. No one knows him anymore. Uh, Bertrand de Marjorie, who wrote magnificently on Our Lady, and he takes it to the the meditation on her Assumption, and points out uh, apart from any question of this happening at any other point in her life, but say habitually and permanently only at this point that with her entry into eternal life, she sees herself, seeing the divine essence, she sees herself coming forth from God. And all of that implies in her own individual vocation. So that's like, we'll get in the vision of God, the knowledge of created things proportionate to our charity and all of that, and we'll see a whole lot that we haven't seen before. But she saw absolutely everything in the first instant of her eternal life. Phenomenal. That's why we're so safe. We're so safe under her because under the under the protection of her wings because uh, we're just safe. 
because she knows it all already. You don't have to worry. This, uh, this I mean, it's a, such an incredible little book, but um, it's it, it sort of bookended the whole thing with St. Louis de Montfort. He opens with a quote and he ends with a quote from St. Louis de Montfort. And uh, it seems like he's trying to provide a sort of very robust theological foundation for so much of what St. Louis says in a more spiritual kind of tone, which uh, which is very, very, very beautiful to see. Yeah, one of the things uh, with Louis de Montfort is, right, the quote-unquote Marian maximalism yeah. that a lot of people were at the oh, time. Oh, yeah, that's just and... bias exaggeration. Some people exactly. might try to say, yeah. But... Exactly, um, and say, yeah, this is overblown, this is excessive, this is um, superstitious, this is something. And one of the things I love in this work of Deconics, and Montfort would absolutely, did absolutely say this too, is there's no confusion here of mother and son. There's no sense in which Mary is somehow a rival to Christ or even operating in the same order as him in terms of greatness. He is God. But one of the things that DeConnick points out that's so awesome is that actually Christ's infinite excelling of Mary is itself a greater compliment to Mary because that one who is infinitely excelling her is the one who came forth from her. <laughs> she gets to be the mother of that one. Like the proudest mom in the world, she gets to be the mom of he who is. Like yeah. goodness itself. What what more could you want than that? So even the the thing that keeps this all in proportion, and by proportion I mean extreme lack of proportion because it's the quote unquote proportion of a creature to the uncreated. Incommensurate. Uh, Exactly. Um, is itself the highest compliment possible for her. So any anything we might try to do to kind of console different worries about, don't worry, we don't love Mary too much, we're not worshiping Mary, let us just mitigate this in some way sort of externally, ends up actually doing a, a much um, poorer job of limiting Our Lady in relation to Christ than the sublime truth of the thing does. If you're worried about Jesus having a rival, then you just don't understand Jesus. Yeah, uh, if right. you think that she could overshadow him so f somehow, it's a Christological problem that we've got because he is God. Um, he is not going to be rivaled. But in his extreme humility, taking on flesh, he allows himself to come forth from the one who is besides him humblest in all creation, right? And so I'll use that as a little pivot point from the first section of this work we've been talking about, which is just called Ego Sapientia. Part one has the same name as the overall thing. Um, to the second part of the work, which is called Nigrasum Sed Formosa. So I am black but beautiful. Um, and this, which is longer than the first part actually, but ends up being a kind of reflection on the humility of the Virgin, um, and not just humility in the sense of kind of how she understands herself or um, uh, not uh, not letting herself get puffed up in pride in terms of her like personal moral comportment or something, um, but how this one, this least of all, ends up getting to be wisdom, um, ends up getting to be the mother of God. Um, and I think there's some really, really beautiful reflections on humility in here. I don't know, from this section, 
was there anything that either of you particularly attached to? Well, let me say the one thing very simply, and that is that that um, in the case of honoring Our Lady in comparison to Our Lord, um, it's impossible to honor her more than he did. It's a very simple observation you can make. That it's just, it's just so I can't exaggerate in my honoring her because he he already did as much as anyone could possibly do, uh, and to an infinite degree. Um, and so, but that's not directly relating to a particular text of the second part, but I just, no, that's okay. Question of humility. Yep. Absolutely. I, I think that one thing is that if you read the translation, which is afforded us of this great work, um, one has to make it clear that the Negrosum said Formosa in the Old Testament, I'm black, but comely is not a racial comment. It is, it refers to the, um, the elegant appearance of a noble woman not having to uh, work out in the fields. It's it's that I'm not I'm not tanned from labor. Right. And that was the, that. It's, so it's an image taken from human culture that 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 she's a princess, she's a queen, that sort of thing. It has nothing to do with being black per se. All right. Just thought I would that because sometimes people are a little embarrassed by the said there. You know. So and that's that's all it's referring to. I'm not sunburned. Is what she's saying. Yeah. <laughs> He, uh, exactly. And speaking about Our Lady's humility, well, he, he's talking about how this is the, the the most merciful God can possibly be to descend really to the to the depths of of His creation, at least the rational creation, in, in order to to save us. But he, he connects Mary's humility to her the, her passivity as mother, and he says very interestingly that that God could not proceed here below from a principle which is active in fecundation. God couldn't have a human father. Uh, such a principle, he says, would have would have to take on the note of a passive principle, so that her maternity is a principle of, of the Divine Son, but a passive one. And uh, I find this very interesting. We're here in the month of St. Joseph, and St. Joseph, of course, a wonderful saint and patron of the Universal Church, head of the Holy Family. But there are some trends that I think are very dangerous in kind of popular piety today to make St. Joseph into a male counterpart to the Blessed Mother, such that you have many people trying to argue that uh, that he was sinless, that he was assumed bodily into heaven, sort of applying to St. Joseph the, the Marian dogmas. So... Uh, I think it's a, it's a mistake to to try to exalt Saint Joseph for the wrong reasons. Of course, we should exalt him because of who he was. But uh, but does it not seem that De Konig is showing us that Mary is in an absolute league of her own here? Well, I don't. You know, the thing is that if you look at the liturgy where it says Joseph, the spouse of the same Virgin, uh, just as it says of Our Lady, mother of the same God and Lord Jesus Christ, they're they're it's of the same because they're linked in uh, liturgical veneration under the same title. That's why when they added the name of Joseph to the canon, they didn't ruin the 12 and 12 symmetry because Joseph is taken along with Our Lady. By the way, that's just you have to point that out to people. But and who's um, at the head of the other? Pardon? Uh, and who's at the head of the other list besides Our Lady? I know this is something John Baptist. Baptist. Exactly. Yeah, I know this right, is exactly. something that you love very much and care about very much. That says that lady said Jim's one son and John the Baptist on the other. Very important. Um but but the uh um 
but as far as the the relationship with Joseph, if I, if I can just add a point that um, resurrection, for example, or even sinlessness, freedom from actual sin, is not. Uh, I mean, it's not exactly the statistical norm, but there's nothing absolutely extraordinary about it. Um, and uh, for Joseph to be free of all actual sin uh, and to be resurrected and brought to heaven in that form, that that still doesn't place those those qualities in him on a level with Our Lady's sinlessness. But John the Baptist was sinless also. Right. Sanctified his mother's womb. And so, um, and John the 23rd, in his homily of Ascension Thursday, 1962, opined in the homily that the, the people that came forth from the tombs at our Lord's death and resurrection, understood, were among them, we may possibly believe, St. Joseph, St. John the Baptist, he lists them all. And of course, there are there are the St. Francis Sales and St. Bernard of Siena, both doctors who hold to his assumption. So it's it. I don't I don't think it has to be interpreted as a um, an over application to him of the privileges given to Our Lady, but rather the acceleration in his case of certain qualities which are natural to all Christians, at least eventually. That's why I would, I would put it. Because I had the same reaction, Father, that I heard kind of hinted in what you were saying. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, but, but in thinking about it for a while, uh, it seemed to make more and more sense to me. Anyway. In a totally different context, just today, I was reading St. Thomas Aquinas's, um, sort of, uh, expositio misae, as it were, his commentaries on the mass in a couple different places. And when he's talking about the fraction, right, in the mass, he's commenting on what's represented by the three different pieces of the host after the fraction, um, and I won't go too, uh, too deep down this rabbit hole, but just to say that the little piece of the fraction that is put into the chalice, he associates with those who already are in heaven, both body and soul. And the way he expresses that is, of course, Christ, his mother Mary, and any of the other saints, if indeed there be such, who are already right. bodily resurrected there as well. Right. Um, so he has a kind of openness, at least, to the possibility that God has chosen to extend this privilege of bodily assumption um, to uh, other saints as well. So, and yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I suppose my how far that it my uh, thought here connected to to Koenig is that Saint Joseph's paternity, in a way, he says is not um, well. He says if a man could have been the father of God, not only would generation be less perfect, paternity would be possible insofar as it would imitate maternity. So even so, in whatever sense St. Joseph is father, it's not imitating the paternity of God, but actually imitating the maternity of Mary. Right, and that's why he's venerated as the spouse of the Virgin Mary. I mean, that's why the liturgy keeps using that expression. It doesn't call him father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but always spouse to make it clear that his veneration is associated with her maternity. Yeah. It's very, very, very important point. Thank you, Father. I also love that in addition to what you're saying, Father Tevate, about how, um, so this is talking about humility, right, and um, God's mercy extending all the way to the depths, um, that it has to be a woman who is the, the principle of generation um, humanly for the incarnate son. Um, but even before we get all the way down to that level and say that, okay, once we know that he's going to be incarnate as man, as human. Um, it must be the, as it were, the 
weaker of the two sexes, quote unquote, in the sense of the sex that is passive in the act of generation, um, the one who generates in herself rather than the one who generates in another. Um, but even before we get there, DeConnick is already talking about how it would have been much nobler in a certain sense, and we might have expected it, for God to choose to assume a created nature to himself rather from the angelic hierarchies, um, that instead of being one of our species, one of many, many of this weakest little intellectual amphibious thing that we are, um, the intellects who need senses just to know anything, um, that it would have apparently been, you know, much more excellent, much more fitting for God to just become an angel instead. And he says, on the one hand, that's fine. Um, but on the other hand, what angels can't do is generate. They can't imitate that part of the triune life of God because not having matter, yes, angels in themselves are nobler than us, no question. No one's disputing that. But every angel is created immediately by God. Um, and so it's the precise potentiality of matter, the fact that we men, we humans, are material beings and have this stuff that we're made out of that makes us worse than the angels. Yes, we're composite where they are not. We are matter and form, whereas they are pure form. But it's precisely that weakness that allows God to proceed from one of us. Um, and so, again, this just shows what DeConnick calls uh, the, God choosing to realize the limit of mercy. Uh, oh. DeConnick says, he has chosen the things that are not and exalted the humble. We can see how, sorry, we can see in this how much those who would wish man to be by nature at least equal to the angels and the woman in everything the equal of man actually diminish the true scale that God has deigned to give his work of predilection, where the woman is queen of the angels. So it's precisely because this hierarchy exists in nature that God in this unbelievable um, act of incarnation through the Blessed Virgin gets to not subvert the hierarchy, but precisely because of the passivity uh, of woman in regard to generation, precisely because of the potentiality of matter that the human species has in relation to producing an offspring, et cetera, gets to reach all the way down to the lowest of intellectual things and then make one of those um, the principle of all the rest, of the entire hierarchy up to the highest of angels. Uh, he also has some really awesome things in here too about um, Mary over and against Satan and how, how all of that looks in virtue of her being um, humble wisdom. But yeah, really, really... Well, it's important to, to consider that that um, that it's only humanity which can be redeemed in this way. God could have taken an angelic nature, but not for the redeeming purpose. There's no possibility of redemption in the same nature for angels. Each one is a kind of its own. Whereas we're a fallen nature, which there's, there's an opening where God could fix a thing, but by a magnificent mystery of the incarnation, by becoming one of us and redeeming us in our own kind. And that's, that's like a, a deep reason, because God doesn't, doesn't work uh, supernatural mysteries of faith simply to do metaphysical razzle dazzle like you know in a kind of <laughs> hyper neoplatonic way. It would be more fitting for God to become an angel than to become a man. Well, but that's but angels don't need redemption, and we do, and they can't be redeemed if they fall, and we can. And so, right. consequently, he it, there's a deep supernatural mystery in the incarnation, but it's also for the very practical 
um, physical fact that human nature is reparable, and therefore, if it's reparable, he's going to repair it, even going to those links. Well, I've got one last quote from us just from the very end of the work, but uh, before we go there, anyone have anything else from Ego Sapientia um, or just, you know, about uh, Our Lady in general, Our Lady in the Common Good, um, Our Lady as Wisdom, etc., that you'd like to make sure we don't miss? A quick point uh, that uh, taking off Father, what Father Define said about um, Louis de Montfort, that is to keep in mind that de Montfort himself formulates the consecration as a consecration to Christ, the eternal wisdom at the hands of Mary. So the wisdom element is in there. And right at the beginning of true devotion, he quotes the passage from Proverbs that we've been discussing I mean, as, as applying to Our Lady. So so he kind of, and then people started to think about that and, and reflect on it in a more deep way. So, but it's, it's there from the beginning. It's not uh, just uh, devotionalism. Sorry, our producer, Joe, whose microphone, unfortunately, is giving him trouble this evening, uh, just gave us a, uh, a question in the com box here on our uh, recording. So, Father Hugh, you mentioned in the beginning that Our Lady ends up being um, the personification, as it were, of the common good that Deconic de defends as um, having primacy over our private individual goods. Can you say more about that, expand upon that, and especially connect um, the way in which Our Lady, either as separated or as intrinsic common good of the universe, ends up relating to um, what we're talking about when we talk about the kind of political common good of all of us as well? Well, well, let's see. <laughs> the the, uh, the, <laughs> the insight there is, is sort of, it, it, it's in the category of God is love, that is, we have the commandment of love. We have to love God above all things. And um, that's a very, that's a concrete thing. Jesus is love. You can love him and you will satisfy the commandment. And you can satisfy the commandment for loving your neighbor as well because he is the first of your neighbors. And in the case of Our Lady, if you're concerned about uh, the good of society and of, or of the creation for that matter, if you want to go to consider that, um, that by loving Mary and being fully uh, united to her, consecrated to her, uh, intentionally uh, and and deliberately, then you actually are 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 um, promoting the good of the human race and indeed of all things whatsoever uh, in your own little place, your own little part in this magnificent uh, world of goodness that we're in, uh, of which Our Lady is the end um, in the created order, and it leads us to her Son, uh, the absolute and the Omega. Uh, in the uncreated order. So I would just say devotion to Our Lady is the, is the answer, you know, from that point of view. What if, if I've totally screwed up, I've just committed a horrible mortal sin. Pray to Our Lady. Talk to her. Connect yourself. I mean, we, we can connect ourselves even after something as bad as that. We can immediately, with our faith, connect ourselves to that which resolves all the difficulties. So just a thought. Since we didn't talk about sin at all. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Well, okay. Our uh, the quote I was going to end us with here um, has something to say about sin. So this is at the end of Deconic's work. He says, "Given the growing misery of this world and the grief to which our Holy Mother, the Church, is subjected, 
it will be agreed that it is opportune to repeat these truths. The church teaches us that along with this growing darkness, the divine mercy will manifest itself more and more in the course of time, and that quite particularly in the more and more explicit revelation of the mysteries of Mary, Mother of Mercy. So that's Ego Sapientia. Thanks very much to, to both of you for walking through that. Um, Father Hugh, if I can ask just before we wrap up, before I let you go, I, I wondered if you could tell us yes. a little bit, um, share a little bit. I told you beforehand I was going to ask you about this just because I know this story and love this story very much. Um, I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about the role that Our Lady played in your own coming to the faith. Um, if you're willing to give a little bit of that personal history here for our listeners. Okay, but which of my stories are you referring to? I have oh. a number of stories of my uh, conversion. Well, okay. My, my, you... The rosary, about the rosary? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Contact with concrete. Yeah, that's, that's, I thought that was what it was going to be. Um, well, so you can share whatever stories you want to share. Yeah, but I just want to make sure I've got the right one as you mentioned the story. Yeah. Um, yep, yep. Because that was really the one that 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 was my first aha moment about this. Um, uh, my father's Episcopal priest of the sort of parochial Anglo-Catholic variety. That is, he believed everything, but he didn't necessarily follow Fortescue and O'Connell on every point, um, like some Anglo-Catholics. So, um, but uh, uh, it was the assassination of Martin Luther King. Uh, so that's sixty-eight. That was nineteen sixty-eight. And um, it had been announced on the television and whatnot. And my mother was um, weeping as she was making supper. And uh, if there are any Yankee Republicans up there, well, you know, just uh, endure this for a moment. And uh, <laughs> as a reminder. But um, anyway, she was weeping, but I didn't know quite why. And I wasn't really all that aware of who this person was. I mean, I'd heard the name, but so I, I asked her. And so she kind of explained, but she said, well, ask your father when he comes in. So as dead. Is very shaken up. Then I went to bed that evening, and I heard in the dining room we had one of those console stereos. You know, back when they put the stereo in a in a in a credenza kind of shaped thing. You know, and there was Dad. He pulled a a, a chair from the dining room table, which you didn't. We didn't go in the dining room except to use the dining room. So he didn't normally sit in there. So he was sitting there by the radio, listening to the news, uh, turned down low. This is in pre modern technology if you will and that's that was the radio in the house and um had it turn and of course the television didn't have constant news so um he's as a download he's listening to the news accounts and of course they were afraid about riots and all that sort of thing and um and i saw his uh bourbon and water on the thing on this coaster you know i could hear the tickling of the ice and uh but then i noticed in his hand he had a rosary he was saying the rosary and I knew he had one, but I didn't know exactly how to go about using it or what one did with it. But I knew he had one that he was very fond of and that it was always with him. But so the first time I saw, uh, I, in my memory, an explicit act of Marian devotion uh, was my dad there on that evening uh, praying the rosary, listening to the news. Um, and that that was made quite an impact on me at the time. Because I knew this was a very... If he was saying the rosary because of that, this had to be a really big deal, you know, and that's how I found out. I, I subsequently asked Dad how to pray the Rosary, what what it was, and whatnot, and he handed me the little Saint Augustine's prayer book from the Order of the Holy Cross, uh, which is the 
as an Anglican religious order. And then I took off from there, you know, picked up little things, finally got a rosary of my own and um, so on. So that's, that was what led me to the faith. Deo gratias. Deus Maria, as the Christians say. Indeed, indeed. Well, um, before we sign off, Father Hugh, uh, anywhere else that our listeners can find you these days? Any other writing or um, I guess y'all have a series going on right now. Are you a part of that, the Lenten right, series sure. that the yeah, Abbey's doing? Yeah, I just recorded something for for Holy Week. I've got some things on uh, on Holy Week that are coming up on our on the Abbey Instagram and, and website and all that, the Abbot Circle. So that's like stmackelsabbey.com and you'll find all that stuff, I suppose. Um, also, I have an article coming out in the Lamp. Coming out. Uh, Wonderful. So, yeah. Uh, that uh, was a reflection on my vacation visit to North Carolina to visit my family there. And um, uh, it's a reflection on Americanism, but also on several other things in relation to our faith and uh, a right view of also our relationship with separated brethren. Because I was down there okay. in Baptist, Coastal Carolina Baptist Territory. So, um, and uh, yeah, so that's the most recent thing. Very good. And Father Tveit, other than, of course, the Josias itself, you have anything to plug? You've got uh, a, well, uh, a translation volume coming out in the not too distant future, yeah. Hopefully, uh, we're we're waiting to see. Uh, it's in the hands of the editors, but uh, yeah, a couple of little works of Boethius, uh be nice. Oh. But of course, the lamp too. Urban and I are both in the lamp's uh, little retrospective on Pope Benedict. So I was on the lamp's podcast recently for that too. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I don't know when this article is coming out, but it's been accepted, and it's, you know. Very good. I won't say who I won't say who rejected it, but that's another question. <laughs> <laughs> Many such cases. Um, yeah, I'm excited to There's see. Right. That's all I have to say. I'm excited to see the lamps. Uh, Pope Benedict retrospective. There's a lot of pieces in there that look like they're going to be really wonderful. But I hate to say I'm on such a delayed timeline. This is not uh, our good friends at the lamps fault at all. This is the Italian postal system's fault. But I only just got the last issue, which is now like six weeks old. So I'm finally reading the pieces that I remember everyone sharing on Twitter uh, sometime in mid-January. But now that's great. Looking forward to seeing those things very much. Well, We'll end it there. Thanks very, very much to both of you, both to Father John Tveit and to Father Hugh Barber today for coming on the show. Thanks to Joe Barnes for producing this episode and to Jonathan Colbreth for our music. Thank you to all of our listeners and thank you especially to our good benefactors on Patreon. If you enjoyed this episode of the Josiah's Podcast and you would like to hear more like it in the future, please head over to patreon.com slash Josiah's to help make that possible. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook if you don't already. Check out our law blog at use at justitium. And find us, most importantly, at thejosias.com. <laughs>